Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll uh, be in 2 Samuel chapter 14, and we'll kind of pick up where we are left last week, as uh, Mr. Dayton said, as we're leaving. Tune in next week to be able to find out what happens here. And uh, it's hard to be able to have all these divides as you go through, because they are you know, interconnected uh, stories as you go through. But uh, here we just need to be reminded that Joab came up with a plan. We don't know much reasoning why he came up with this plan. Uh, We know that he wanted to be able to change the outcome. There was something that was happening currently at the start of chapter uh, 14 that he wanted to be able to change the outcome of, of the end. He wanted things to be able to be different. We don't know whether he he wanted Absalom to come back because of military reasons. He's concerned about what is going to happen. And maybe we see this in chapter 15, that he starts setting up his own little army. Uh, Maybe it was about loyalty to to the king and making sure that he was safe. Maybe it was uh, personally concerned for David's well-being and his health, uh, as it says in verse uh, 1, that he knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Uh, so he's a little bit concerned about uh, David, and he's seen a change over those years. Uh, so he calls a woman from Tekoa uh, to come and meet with David. And up to this point, his plan had been working the whole point along. Um, David had heard the story about these two brothers that got in a fight in the field. He'd sworn to be able to serve justice to those two brothers, uh, and he made a promise against, uh, made a vow uh, with the God's name, but uh, what he has done is he's convicted himself, as the woman puts it, that he's uh, convicted himself that this same situation. And we need to again be reminded that this is all happening, you know, we're getting small little snippets over a large amount of time. That um, it was right back in 2 Samuel chapter 13 that Amon uh, uh, rapes Tamar, and then Absalom two years later murders his uh, brother Amon. And Absalom's now in Gesher. He's been there for about three years. So it's been a period of five years after this uh, divisive action that has come in the house and seemingly torn the house apart. Um, So Joab now has sent this woman of Tekoa to be able to meet with the king. And so that's where we find ourselves this evening. But we find out that David somehow or other has picked up uh, this woman and her request. She, he, he's got some hints along the way, whatever they might be. Uh, maybe Joab for these years has been constantly uh, reminding or nagging King David about Absalom. The three years that he's been out uh, telling him to bring Absalom back, bring Absalom back, you know, all these times. And then when this woman of Tekoa comes, um, he, he able to be able to uh, pick up on these clues, whatever it might be. And uh, so he asked the question in verse 18 and 19. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. And the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? Very direct question. Uh, Just understanding, is Joab any part of this uh, story, this plan that you have um, before this. Again, we don't know why this is. Joab might have been talking to King David for a while. Maybe she picked up, it says that 
um, Joab put words in her mouth. And maybe there's words that she says that are Joab's words. Um, we don't know. Maybe, uh, you know, in a cartoon or something, Joab is around the corner, peering his head around, trying to, to see what's happening. And David's a bit clued in on this and, and notices that Joab's been a bit more attentive to this conversation. We don't know. But uh, we do know that he noticed. He was able to be able to connect the two between this story, not even saying a word about Absalom, but being able to connect this story about these two brothers who fight and killed each other in the uh, field, um, this vow that he, she forced David to be able to say. And then the woman comes in and speaks again. Again, this very long speech, but uh, in verse 19, asks the question quite simply, is the hand of Joab with you in this? And the woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my Lord, the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord, the king, has said. It was your servant, Joab, who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant, Joab, did this. But the Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of an angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. So here... You know, is the hand of Joab in this? The answer is yes. Uh, we've known that from the start. Um, but the woman and her words to David stand out. We don't know much about her. We know that she's from Tekoa. We know that Joab hired her to be able to do this. We know that Joab was the one who put words in her mouth. But it, it makes it difficult to be able to understand what words are Joab's in all of this and what words are hers. But she turns to flattery. She turns to be able to flatter David. You notice how many times she says, you know, my Lord, the king. She says that several times throughout there. Uh, even one cannot turn from the right or to the left from anything the Lord, my king, the king has said. And then even at the end, the Lord, my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom and an angel of God to know all things that are on earth. She called him an angel before, and now she does it again. Is this just, uh, you know, there's some uh, ladies that have uh, a term, you know, uh, they'll call you hun. It doesn't matter who you are. That's just the term they'll call you. So is this something, a part of her vocabulary that she's picked up on, or is, again, is it a sense of Joab and the words which she was told to use? Now, possible that she has a, a large amount of respect for King David that she's put into this situation for whatever reason, and she has a large amount of, and, and she truly means every single one of these words that she utters. The other option is that she's scared for her life. This type of uh, thing it could be considered treason, you know, without properly understanding the motives behind all this, that Joab could be seeking to be able to turn this around, that Absalom might come and be able to kill his father that then Absalom might be able to take, uh, Joab might be able to take Absalom out and rise to the throne. You, you don't, and, and when it comes to treason, there's not many times where people get opportunities to be able to present their case. You don't get, let someone who's committing treason present their case. Often in those times, you need to lock them up and put them away because, you know, they're going to try and twist the words. Or the last option is she is a tremendously good actor and that her acting is just trying to play the part, even with revealing that Joab is a part of this. Now, I t tend to try and think the best in the si these types of situations. I tend to believe that she does uh, respect King David, um, and she's speaking honestly. 
But I do have some reservations, and, and maybe she is try, trying to be able to flatter him a little bit, not to be able to um, be put to death for treason, uh, conspiring with uh, Joab. But in all of this, the important part that she says in all of this is not what she says about David. It says about Joab in verse 20. We find out this key part, why did Joab do this? Now, we mentioned this before last week when we looked at this, because this is a very key verse. Why did Joab do this? He did this in order to change the course of things. Though we find out, again, that there was something at the start of chapter 14 that Joab did not like. So he sought this woman to be able to come and talk to David that it would change, the situation would change. Mainly that Absalom would not be outside of the city of Jerusalem, that he would be back in Jerusalem in the king's house. So now this woman um, is no more. We don't hear anything more about her. She has played her part. She has played her part for Joab. She has answered the question of David. Joab now goes straight to the man himself. David meets Joab. Joab has gone behind the king's back. For some type of advantage for Absalom, it might appear, though we don't have any reasoning besides that he wanted to change the outcome of it, that Joab is the commander of the army. And as a king in this period, you need to have someone you can trust in all of this, not someone who's going to go behind your back. You don't generally get a second chance when it comes to these type of situations. Now think about it. David had been told in verse Uh, In chapter 12, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise up evil, raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Now, this is what information that David has at this point. Over this last, you know, at least five years, this probably has been going through his mind, if not longer, after the events of Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. And so all this is going through his house. Now, who is going to be the prime suspect in all of this? He, he might be losing sleep over thinking about who is going to be the one that divides this house. Maybe he thought it was Amon for a while. And Amon's taken care of. Absalom runs away. And now he finds out that Joab is the one who has gone behind his back, who has has planned and schemed things, hired this woman to come into this situation. He may be picked up on all the discussions and the murmurings that have happened around the house. Is Joab the one who's going to be the one that raises evil in his house against him? Was Joab planning to kill Absalom? Or did David think that Joab was planning a a way to be able to get back at David for some reason? And on the flip side, Joab was the one who took care of Abner without David knowing. So this is a, a second time he has gone behind his back and done something without David's knowledge. Had he used his, his one and last chance with Abner? Was this the last straw once David found out about Joab going behind his back? Now you just imagine the atmosphere. 
Joab knows all this. He, he, he's, he's the closest person to David during this time. His chief of staff. And he gets summoned to see the king. To come in before and stand before the king. Being called to the principal's office probably doesn't summarize this type of meeting. This is what we see in verses 21 to 24. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant you this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house, did not come into the king's presence. Finally, the king speaks in all of this, and he grants Joab's request. What a a sigh of relief, I'm sure, on Joab's mind. We don't know why the king decided to, uh, to go with Joab's, maybe Joab's persistence. Maybe Joab has been loyal. Abner was a once and only time, and he, he continues to see Joab's wise decisions. We don't know. Maybe it was the woman's words and her argument, but they're actually Joab's words that were put in our mouth. But again, we must be reminded that his heart went out for Absalom. So maybe it's a, a, all three of these things put together. And we see Joab turn in respect and, and understands that he has received grace and favor in the eyes of the king. That's what that word says, that him is the word that we would use for grace. So Joab goes and picks Absalom up from Geshur and brings him back to Jerusalem. But we find out about one condition which is put upon Absalom. That the king says to Joab that he is not allowed to enter into the king's presence. Now, the way the author mentions this makes you believe that this condition was told to Absalom after coming to Jerusalem, but we don't know for sure. But then we find this this little uh, excursion in the text, you might say, a strange place for it. In the middle of this story, we find out about Absalom. We find out more information about Absalom. And what I mean by that is, it's not really a part of the story. Normally, this type of thing is at the start of the chapter, or the end of the chapter, or, or at the end of their life, or things like this. But here it is, right? Somewhat in the middle. Joab's gone to get Absalom. He's allowed, but he's not allowed in the king's presence. Find out in verse 24. The king said, let him dwell in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart from in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. And then you jump to 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. That those two things, you, you just almost get rid of those verses in the middle and the storyline would flow seamlessly. However, inserted are these three verses that give us some information about Absalom. 
We find out in verses 25 and 27. Now in all of Israel there is no one so much as to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. For the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And when he had cut the hair of his head for the end of every year he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a beautiful woman. Now we're told three things in these three verses. Firstly, about his appearance. That from the bottom to his, the top to the bo- his bottom, he had no blemish. Now, it, it is very rare in the Bible to have any form of physical description about someone. You notice we hardly ever find out about people's eye colors, their hair, their skin complexion, their height. We hardly ever find out much about how we would describe things. If someone was writing uh, today a novel, this is where they would spend a lot of their time, describing a picture for us. But the Bible doesn't often give us pictures. Again, it's very rare in the Bible to see physical descriptions. But we're told a couple of things about his appearance. One, he is handsome like his father. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 42. When Goliath is taunting David, he taunts and he disdained him. And the reason why he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. It's the same words that are put in there. But I think the reason why we're told this is not because he's handsome like his his father. The reason is that he looked like a king. We pointed this out when we went through 1 Samuel in particular. But in 1 Samuel, one of the first things we learn about Saul in chapter 9, is that there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, and the son, and he had a son called Saul. And then in verse 2, let me turn there. Verse 2, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. His shoulders upward, he was taller than any people. So again, this is one of the first things we find out about Saul. And we need to keep that in mind as we begin to, to learn about Absalom and the chapters that are coming. And again in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, when they're looking for them, Saul is mentioned, and the reason he's mentioned is he's taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said, and turned to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. The people shouted, Long live the king. Not only he was like Saul, but he was also like Eliab, his uncle, David's brother, in 1 Samuel chapter 16. When he's looking now for the king, Samuel sent out to be able to look for a king, and he said, He's one of the kings as one of the sons of Jesse. And he comes up and he sees Eliab. And remember what he said about Eliab. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Maybe that's why we don't get many physical descriptions in the Bible. Because God doesn't mind what people look like externally more concerned about their heart now you must assume that 
Makkah, which is his mother, is very beautiful because Tamar, his sister, is very beautiful. And also his daughter is very beautiful. We're told this. The second thing we're told about him is about his hair. (coughs) Now, depending on weights, we don't know exactly how many 200 shekels, according to the king's weight, would be. Like saying someone, how much is a U.S. dollar worth? You'd have to say it's worth a U.S. dollar. But compared to other things, how much is it worth? It would change and vary. So, the lowest number I saw was about two pounds. The highest was about six pounds. I think it just is, again, just... And impressive nonetheless. There is this possible connection between his hair and then Samson. Again, think about Samson. Samson was someone who God used, but he didn't necessarily have a right heart towards God. He's said he's, he's in the hall of faith for his faith, but it's not necessarily like you want to teach your kids to be like Samson. He's not an upright moral character. But he is known for his strength and his hair. But the last thing we're told about is, is his family. Now, if you ever were to feel sorry for Absalom, I think this might be the reason you would feel sorry. It would be this verse. Here it says that he had three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was beautiful. But these three sons are unnamed. In First Samuel, Second Samuel, chapter eighteen, verse eighteen, we're told that now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself the pillar of the in the king's valley, for he said, "I have no son to keep my name in remembrance." And he called the pillar after his own name. It was called Absalom Monument to this day. That here in Second Samuel chapter fourteen, we're told that he has three sons. In Second Samuel chapter eighteen, we're told that he has three. He does not have any sons to be able to. Um, keep my name. Now what is most likely is that his sons are unnamed because they die at birth before they are circumcised on the eighth day and named. So he has three sons that die in infancy. Now some people have said that Second Samuel verse 18, verse 18, he set up this monument before uh, we find out about Second Samuel chapter 14. But it, I... I I think that Second Samuel 18 is very specific in its word, that I have no son to keep my name. It's not that he has no sons. He had three sons, but none of them are able to be able to keep his name. But you see, this slight human emotion, even in the naming of his daughter, after his beloved sister who has been living with him this whole time, that his daughter shared the name of her aunt, that she also was beautiful. But now, Absalom meets David. Now, David had not seen Absalom since he requested that sheep, famous sheep shearing party. A period of five years had passed, and nothing had happened until Joab met the woman at Tekoa. But now he dwells in Jerusalem, but he's not entering the king's presence. So it's not just this period of uh, three years that he hasn't seen him, it's now a period of five years where he has not seen his son. 
But he's not treated guilty. If he was treated guilty, he he would have uh, received the death penalty. But he's also not treated as as innocent. Because he's not allowed to enter the king's presence. This is what we're told, that he lived two years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So Absalom begins to take things into his own hands. Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Now he tried his best. He tried a couple of times. Joab didn't pick up his phone. So what's the next thing you do after you've tried twice? Of course, you burn down their field to the ground. Seems like the rational next step to do. But hey, uh, Joab, uh, Absalom, like a lot of these characters that we're seeing in these passages of Scripture, it's they understand to know what they want and how to get it. They, they'll go to almost any lengths to be able to get what they want. And this is what we notice here with Absalom, that he finally then meets with Joab in verses 31 to 32. And Joab rose and went to Absalom at his house and said, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why haven't I, I come from Gesher? Would have been better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Absalom had some unanswered questions that he wanted to know. Why why did I come from Gesher? He says that it would have been better for me to be there still. He would have rather lived in Gesher, away from his family, away from the people to be able to just be on his own. Maybe he, he had a sense of independence there. But now he is unable to. But the reason is that I want to go into the presence of the king. And he asks the question, if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. The question that we all want to know is, why did Joab want him from Gesher? We don't know that specifically. All that we know is that he wanted to change the course of things. Is this the course that he wanted to change? But ultimately, Absalom asks a, a very important question. Am I guilty or innocent? There's no middle way in this situation. Either put me to death because I'm guilty, or let me come into the king's presence because I'm innocent. And he puts it and says, the time has come. The king needs to make a decision. The king needs to pass judgment. What will it be? Now in all of this, I think we've seen that we're very sympathetic towards Absalom. Because what Amon did to his sister Tamar. But this is exactly what this cloaked wisdom looks like as last week. It's an appeal based on emotion, not on the facts. Absalom was not in the position of a civil law enforcement officer carrying out justice. 
but it was a vengeful act against his brother, filled with anger and plot, and, and that he murdered his brother Amon. So the time has come for the king. Now again, we've pointed this out throughout this whole chapter. David is not mentioned. He's always referred to as the king. This carries weight into the next chapter as well. But it's the role of not the, not the father to pass judgment. It's the role of the king to pass judgment on his subjects. So Joab went to the king and told him. And he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. So Absalom finally, after all these years, five years, enters into the presence of the king. And I'm sure just as you could imagine that scenario with Joab, so too you can imagine this scenario where you could hear a pin drop. Absalom walks in and bows to the ground before the king. Now before we move on, I want to highlight something that's important here in this chapter, but it's also important in the next chapter, chapter 15. It's that three times people in this passage come and stand before the king. Again, he's mentioned as the king, not David. Not even King David, not, not his father. He's, he's called the king. And three times, three different people come and stand in front of the king. And their response is somewhat similar, but I think you'll notice that there's a bit of a change. The woman of Tekoa came to the king. She fell on her face to the ground and paid homage to him, saying, Save uh, me, O king. So again, you notice she comes in. She falls down to the ground. She pays homage to him. Save the king. The second person that comes and stands in the presence of the king is Joab. And he comes in to be able to uh, fall on the ground. He paid homage and he blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in the sight my lord the king. And the king has granted the request of his servant. So the woman comes in, she bows down, she pays homage. Joab comes in, he bows down, pays homage, and blesses the king. Now Absalom comes in, but he only bows down. Now again, we're told the information, we're told the facts. And I think next week I'll point out that why I think that this is an important thing in chapter 15. But here, maybe positively, to look at this situation. Cultures are different. Now, it's possible that a son has a different way of greeting their um, father. Culturally, that might be a bit of a difference. That an official like Joab has to do more things. They're held to a higher standard. That Joab, as a military leader, might have, that was what was required of him. Now, to put it maybe a bit negatively, that you see Joab, um, Absalom here is not showing the respect to the king that the king deserves. The woman of Tekoa comes in, bows down, and pays homage. Joab comes in, bows down, pays homage, and blesses him. But Absalom only comes in and bows down. Now, we don't know that for sure. I think in chapter 15, there's a case to be made that, that Absalom, people come and bow down before him and pay homage to him. That it's a sign of respect 
to that which you would give to a king. But finally, this last action that David kissed Absalom. Now, this is used throughout the the Bible, not just to speak of those, a husband and a wife, but also those with a familiar relationship. And it's often used between those who have been separated for a long amount of time and they're reunited. It's used of Esau in Genesis chapter 33. It's used of Aaron and Moses in chapter Exodus chapter 4. It's used of David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 20. But in all of those times, there is often that there is a kiss, but then there is also weeping that is connected with this. We looked at this when we looked at uh, Joseph and his brothers. It's not that they just fell upon their necks and kissed one another, but they also there was weeping that was reunited here. There is no uh, weeping in this moment. That you might say that it's a stale comment that the king kissed him. But there's also a connection not just to familiar relationships, but also that of one of respect. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way that his wrath is quickly kindled. Bless all who take refuge in him. That here it's, it's not merely just a sign of affection, but a sign of respect. And it's used also once, I think, Quite clearly, to show order, actually it's translated in the ESV, not that he kissed, but this idea of order. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 40, he shall be over my house, and all my people shall order, that same word there, order is the same word there as kissed, themselves as you command. Only regard to the thrones, I will be greater than you. So it has not just this sense of family familiar affection, but also this order, this sense that he has been pardoned. So an interesting conclusion, as we see in the coming pages, we'll have to ask the question, did King David make the right decision? Is Absalom who he says he is? What type of character and heart does Absalom have? I'm going to finish with the words of the commentator. But with no record of any word spoken is apparently only formal recognition, with no warmth in it. Indeed, the threefold repetition of the king and not his father points to the tension remaining between them. Seven years have passed since Tamar was raped, and five years since Amon was murdered. But the story is not yet half told. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.